This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. This year we're exploring the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament and what we're calling a chronogeobiological flow. That is, we're following the chronology of the book of Acts, and then we veer off now and then to the people, places, and, and topics that are addressed in Acts. But today we're going to come back to the book of Acts because Paul had just returned from his first missionary journey throughout the region of Galatia. And then he wrote the book of Galatians, I believe that's when he wrote it, he wrote it to those same people and saying, listen, you don't have to be circumcised, but that did not end it. So Paul was now back home, which in this case was where he was headquartered in Antioch in Syria. Yep, it still exists today, not only Syria, but Antioch has a little slightly different name, but it still exists today. And this was a very, very important city there. Uh, Ben, I'm just going to take a minute to to talk a little bit about Antioch before we get started. Uh, Some people say that it was the third most important city in the entire Roman Empire. There was Rome itself in Italy, Alexandria in Egypt, and then Antioch in Syria. It was was the third largest city in the empire. It was super important. They had all the, the... beauty of Hellenistic culture, Greek culture at that time, with theaters and temples and aqueducts and kind of the modern world. Some people call it the cradle of Christianity because it was from there that that Christianity took deep root in there for so long that it launched from there, Paul's missionary journeys and so forth. And so there was a lot that took place. I mean, it goes back quite a ways in Acts chapter 11 we see that the gospel is taken to that city and and given to them. Uh, and in fact, as that was happening, Barnabas and then he went and got Paul, who went by the name Saul at that time. And it says in verse, I'm, I'm starting in Acts, Acts chapter eleven, verse twenty-five. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year. Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So Antioch wasn't just like a, a stopover town somewhere else. It was a major city. It was a, a very Roman city. At that time, the Romans had taken it over and, and turned it into a very Roman city. But it was a place where Christianity was flourishing. Barnabas and Saul stayed there for a full year and taught people, and they, they got the nickname Christians. And we still use that name today. Christians is what people are called who follow Christ, and that took place in Antioch. So Antioch was, was uh, an important city, and it was an important city, not just in the Roman Empire, but one for the development of the Christian Empire. So it was in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas returned after their first missionary journey into Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, part of the Roman Empire. It was called Galatia at the time. They returned, and they came back to Antioch. And they, they sat down, and, and Paul wrote the book of Galatians that we talked about last week. So what do you think's got going on in, in, in Paul and Barnabas's world at this time as they're in that spot, they're, they're, they're back, they've, they've arrived back in Antioch, maybe have written the book of, of Galatians by this point or not, like they're they're figuring it all out. What what's stirring up inside of them? That's a great question, there, Pastor Mark. 
I don't know. I hadn't really thought much about that question. I, here, I'm gonna, I'll answer a little bit of it. I, I think they were coming off a of euphoria a bit because they had had, they had hmm. success in their trip to Galatia. Mm-hmm. There were people who came to Christ like crazy, Jews and Gentiles. And they had also had some major moments of defeat, but they'd survived them. Somebody tried to stone Paul. Mm-hmm. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. So he's got the, the skid marks of being dragged out of the, out of a city and he wasn't dead. They just thought he was dead. So it, they made it, you know, like when you make it through something tough, it, it makes you stronger for the, for the next thing. And I, I just imagine some of this was going on inside of them. Yeah, pro- uh, definitely. That, that would make sense. And then also I think the, uh, maybe that immediate shock that just having, come back really to Antioch and already seeing some false teaching emerging in Galatia that they're actually confronted with, uh, in, you know, coming back to Antioch with that euphoria, as anyone knows, who has gone out on a missionary journey and even experienced as Paul has this level of suffering, this level of opposition that they faced and, and yet coming back uh, home and being able to share with everybody all that they've done, all that they've seen, all that they've encountered, and then almost immediately probably getting word of uh, the false teaching in, in Galatia. Yeah, we're really good at taking 10-day you know, or 7-day missionary trips in, in our culture. This was probably two or three years that they went, and they embedded in these communities, uh, and, and they were pretty excited about what they could do. So they're back in Antioch, and the, and if you if you pick up the story, let's pick up a piece of Galatians that we did last time, but we didn't cover this part of it. And back in Antioch, it says in Galatians chapter two, beginning in verse eleven, when Cephas, this poor guy named Peter in the Bible, his name is Simon, his name is Peter, his name is Cephas. Uh, Simon was his name, Peter was his nickname, and but Cephas was the the um the Aramaic version of that is that do I that is that, is that backwards <laughs> maybe I do I don't know but they had Cephas and and Peter that were his name and they meant the rock and so that he was named Rocky so when Cephas that is Peter came to Antioch or in Galatians two eleven when he came to Antioch I Paul says I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles. Remember back in earlier in the book of Acts, he had the sheet came down and he had meals with people in Caesarea and all kinds of things. It says, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, I don't know about, you know, nicknames as far as nicknames go, but I don't know if they like they had T-shirts printed I'm part of the circumcision group or, or or whatever else, but it's kind of a strange thing. But this is the same people, the Judaizers that we spoke about last time, who were trying to convince people that you got to be circumcised if you want to be a Christian. You've got, and, and that's a symbol that you're going to follow the Jewish law. So I want to pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, where we're going to spend the balance of our time. And whether or not these are the exact same event or not, they both took place. Or that, or the one took place, but in Acts fifteen, it's again they're in Antioch, and people come from Jerusalem, and it says Acts fifteen verse one: certain people came 
down from Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, to Antioch, that's in Syria, and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. These folks won't let it go. They will not let go of this this concept that people had to be circumcised. I know we spoke about it in our podcast on Galatians, but let's, let's kind of cover that ground again. Like, why is this such a big deal to them? I think part of it is just that it's so culturally rooted in them and religiously rooted in them. I mean, this is a sign of covenant faithfulness to God. And so that that's where it's derived from. That's what it's born of. And so trying for them, trying to wrap their minds around uh, this idea that this thing that is the ultimate sign of covenant faithfulness to God is not necessary in order to be in right relationship with God, um, they were really wrestling with it. it to, the, to the degree that, as we saw in the passage you read here a second ago, that Peter himself fell back in uh, with that notion, with that idea, was, uh, was uh, you know, compelled to um, join with the Judaizers for at least a brief moment to where Paul confronts him to his face. And, and credit to Peter, Peter doesn't respond to Paul and say, you know, bro, you know who you're talking to? I'm Peter. I'm Petros, you know. I'm the I'm the man. I'm the head of the 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 church in Jerusalem. Instead, Peter, in humility, uh, responds to Paul, recognizes the truth of what Paul is saying, and really recommits himself to the, to the truth, to the fundamental truth of the gospel itself. Yeah, I mean these these folks had some influence. This circumcision group, the Judaizers, had some influence. So they they got to Peter. They got to James, which is the brother of Jesus, apparently. They, they got to a, a number of the, the key leaders and said, no, you can't make following Christ simply faith in the crucified and risen Lord. You have to add the law. You have to bring circumcision into it. And they didn't want to give it up, so Peter is beginning to listen and it says, I, I like what takes place. So they, they wanted to send them to Jerusalem so they could have this big meeting, meet with the apostles, meet with the elders. I don't know if Peter was still with them or if he'd already gone back, but it'd be interesting if he were, because in verses 3 to 4 of Acts 15, it says the church, that's the church in Antioch, sent them, at least Barnabas and Paul, on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia, Gentile territory, and Samaria, kind of half-Gentile territory, mixed race of people, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This is back when they were in Galatia. So understand, when they were in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, in Galatia, they converted Gentiles. Now they're traveling through Phoenicia and Samaria. These are territories that border up against Israel. And they told these people like what had happened. And it says this news made all the believers very glad. <laughs> well, yeah, because they were not—they were living in Gentile territories. When they had come to Jerusalem, 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So they come even in Jerusalem, and these these believers who are probably almost exclusively Jewish people who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah, they were what we would call today Messianic Jews, they believed they were Christians who had been Jews, they they told them the story. Hey, we went to Galatia, we ministered to Gentiles, and Gentiles were converted, and all seemed pretty good. Until you get to the next verse, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. You know, these Pharisees, they, they just won't go away. I mean, they, they irritated Jesus all, all through the time. He had a relationship, give and take with them, and they were there giving approval at his, at his death and covering up for his resurrection and, along with the Sadducees and others. Um, and here's the Pharisees who really believed in the law. That's what they were known for. They really believed in especially the first five books of the, of the Bible as we know them, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are the books of Moses. And they said, you got to keep that. So some of these Pharisees had become converted to Christ, and yet they couldn't give up on their past. They couldn't give up on their past ways of, of the law. Uh, what can you give insight into there with the the Pharisees and what they're doing here in this in this moment. Yeah, I think it's it's part of of human nature itself is that sometimes, in essence, leaving the past behind is not that easy, especially when uh, aspects of the past might be something that we associated with the divine. And so, for the Pharisees who were rooted in the law, the notion that this symbol of of covenant faithfulness was no longer necessary to be made right with God was something that was initially very difficult for them to wrap their mind around because they want to be faithful to God, you know, and we see it, we see it today, even with some folks, you know, we look at the, the sign of the new covenant, uh, the visible sign of the new covenant or symbolic sign of the new covenant that, that we practice like baptism. You see people, as we talked about on the last podcast, you see people, uh, grafting that into the gospel itself, saying that it's belief in Jesus and you have to be baptized. And so a lot of times it's born out of a desire to be faithful, faithful to God, uh, even though it contradicts the message itself. And so these Pharisees, uh, again, wanting to be faithful, are having a hard time recognizing and receiving the message that hey, look, God, Christ is sufficient. This is no longer necessary for covenant faithfulness. This is no longer, uh, an, this is not a necessity for salvation. And on the flip side of that, we see the same thing actually with the Gentiles themselves who are coming out of what we would qualify, or the Jews especially would qualify as a, a, this pagan background and they had their own means of, uh, in, in their, their mind, their hearts, of getting, uh, you know, getting close to the divine. And so we see all these practices in, that Paul's addressing, like, in, in a lot of his letters. We see 
uh, all like with sexual immorality, for instance, um, there was a lot of sexual practices in the first century that the Gentiles held up. Uh, some Gentiles held up as being an act of getting near to the divine that was associated with the divine that they continued to practice after having received Christ. And Paul is addressing a lot of that, like in his letter to the Corinthians, where we see them engaged in all sorts of of pagan uh, sexual act. And Paul saying, no, that is not aligned. That, that was an aspect of your old life that has nothing to do with Jesus. That has nothing to do with your relationship with God. And so coming into uh, faith in Christ, a lot of times, one of the struggles that, that we wrestle with or can wrestle with um, that we see here with the Pharisees in, in Acts 15 is that something that has been so essential to their understanding of covenant faithfulness, now having to recognize this is not essential was, was difficult for them. Deny yourself. Right. Take up your cross and follow me, Christ said. Yep. We picked the story up in Acts fifteen six. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. The question was whether the Gentiles had to be circumcised and required to keep the entire law of Moses in order to be Christians. So the, the apostles and the elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter it's interesting because Peter, we just talked about, he, he had been up there in Antioch and he was, he was siding with the, the Judaizers, with the circumcision group, and, or at least backing away from the Gentiles. But he did listen. I think you're right. He listened to Paul because it says in verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. So he's reflecting back on his experience in Acts 11 and Caesarea. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Nobody's kept the, the law of Moses, he's saying. He says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. In other words, none of, even you even you Pharisees haven't been able to keep the law of Moses perfectly. You, you have not fulfilled the entire biblical moral code in your lives. Why are you going to put that burden on them? It's a really great question. So Peter speaks, and for a moment here we see Barnabas and, and Paul coming into the scene. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So there's the, one of them is like the, the language that Paul, the P, I'm sorry, that Peter's giving, but then here's the stories, the personal stories of Paul and Barnabas. Like, let me tell you what happened and how the Gentiles reacted to the, to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I, I want to focus on this next piece for just a minute. 
it's in verse 13, and it says, when they finished, James spoke up. I, I love this, because this is James, not the apostle. He'd already been executed, but James, the brother of Jesus. And, and we know, of course, that James was one of the multitude of siblings of Jesus. Mary and Joseph went on to have other brothers, uh, sons and daughters, I'm sorry. They would be brothers and sisters of Jesus. You might call them half-brothers, because um, they were born of Joseph, not of the Holy Spirit. And so he has some credibility. We'll talk more about him next week in the podcast on the book of James. But he spoke up and said, brothers, listen to me. He reflects back on what Simon Peter just said. Simon Peter has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. He goes on to quote some some passages from the Old Testament. And then down in verse 19, it's like he drops the hammer. And he said he must have had some authority because of the way he said it. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So in other words, he's saying, don't make them be circumcised. Don't, don't require this of them. Before I move on with this, I just want to step back and take a look at this piece of it with, with James. Uh, he, he becomes the leader in many ways. He wasn't one of the 12. He becomes the leader of the, of the church in, in Jerusalem, it seems. And he has some authority as he speaks this out. And people who are Pharisees, who are not converted to Christ, people who are like Peter, the right-hand man of Jesus, like they're listening and giving deference to to James. Uh, what's 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 happening here? Like as the church is figuring out who they were and who the leadership was, and they're they're trying to figure out what the rules and the regulations would be, and whether we're going to require circumcision or not. There's a massive controversy that threatens to break up the the church. And of course, James was as Jewish as you can get. You know, he was he was a, he was completely Jewish. Any insights into like what's happening here in this scenario as James is speaking these words? Yeah, I mean, clearly James is given deference and and some of that undoubtedly derived out of his relationship uh, with Jesus. I mean, one of the the beauties of this of knowing the Gospels themselves, one of the things we see in the Gospels is we see James's tension with Jesus from the standpoint that that James does not see who his brother is really until after, you know, post-resurrection. Um, because at one point we, we see James and, and Mary showing up when Jesus is talking uh, to a group in a house and, and they think, and, I mean, basically that Jesus has lost his mind and that they're trying to get him removed or pull him out of the house. And so one of the things that we see here is we see that James has come to receive Christ as Messiah um, as the as the Christ, and then we see that James has come to a place of authority within the Jerusalem church itself. So, so James says we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Let them become followers of Jesus. Verse twenty. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to. And, but he does put some regulations in mm-hmm. place, telling them to abstain from first food polluted by idols, secondly from sexual immorality, third, from the meat of strangled animals, 
and forth from blood. That's the list. Circumcision is not on that list, but there are some things that he tells them to abstain from. What's what's that all about? You got some insights for that one? Yeah, uh, a little bit. I'm putting it on you because I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's like it's it's what you talked about earlier with, you know, like there, there were practices, especially in the Gentile world, of of ways to get close to the divine, and you can't just go do anything you want just because <laughs> because Christ has forgiven you that you still have to pull yourself apart from these these Id- idols, these wrong ways of worship that help you Gentile, your Greek people get close to God. They're, that's a lot of it. So what's wrapped up in there. Is that how you see it? Yeah. For the most part, um, there's aspects here that I would say are a part of the just moral authority uh, of God that, you know, like the sexual immorality part, there, there's no means, no place where that is acceptable at all under any circumstance. The one, the one thing that we do see, and I think it's in First Corinthians eight, where Paul talks about the the freedom to eat meat, or if I'm remembering this correctly, I should probably not have brought it up, but oh well, here we go. Uh, send all your send done. all your emails to mlsesser <laughs> at fishersumc.org. Uh, but we see Paul talking about the freedom to to actually eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, recognizing that that idols aren't gods themselves, but also recognizing that and he makes the point like, hey, don't use your freedom to to create a stumbling block for somebody else. And so there's also aspects here you know, relative to eating meat, sacrificed idols, it's an aspect of community. Um, and Paul makes this point in, in 1 Corinthians, he makes this point again in Romans 14, where he's, he's saying, look, don't do something in front of another that's going to de- cause them to defy their conscience before God, where they're going to believe or think that they themselves are living in violation, uh, that they're not living faithfully uh, in, uh, to the Lord. And so, yeah, and, and so there's also the part of this, too, that um, no, no Christian should be a syncretist from the standpoint that nobody should be sacrificing food to idols. No one should be sacrificing food to false gods or engaged in any kind of pagan uh, worship uh, either. Some of that seems to be what he talks about in that final verse, in verse 21, mm-hmm. when he's, Paul, Paul is knowing that the Gentile Christians have to be in community with the Jewish Christians and says, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. So they're going to hear, they're going to read the law. They're going to hear it and don't just go about your pagan ways and, and do whatever you want. And there, right. there to me, there's a, a piece of that. that's like, we can't just do whatever we want. We can't live any, just any way we want or think any way we want or practice anything that we want and still call ourselves followers of Christ, that there are, there are ramifications to saying yes to Jesus. If, if the New Testament is summed up by three words to me, it's Jesus is Lord. That's the book of Acts especially and, and beyond. Jesus is Lord. And if he is the Lord, he is the master. He is the one who sets the marching orders for my life, then I don't have the the freedom to go live any way that I want. That's not what freedom means. It's freedom from 
the law, yes, but not not for right. a license for doing what licentiousness right. in life. Right. right. Well, we we exist in submission to our Lord who has who yielded himself to the cross on our behalf. We yield ourselves uh to him. We live in submission to him. He doesn't submit himself to us. Uh, we are not Lord over Jesus. Jesus is Lord over us and we can fully yield ourselves and entrust ourselves to him as he is the one who is who is the author of truth and love and has and has lavished his grace and love upon us. Well, I am grateful for this conversation, but I'm most grateful for what how God used James in this story and the others who agreed. Because if it weren't for that, I, I don't know that the, the gospel could have taken off through the Greco-Roman world and then to the rest of the world in the way that it did, removing some of these barriers. So we're going to take a look actually next time at the book of James, the letter written by this same, this same man, and we'll, we'll kind of see what he has said about living in this tension still between faith and good works. So we'll do that next time. If you want to jump in deeper, you can go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, and click on the Be On Mission link. That will take you to more elements in this year-long study of the mission of Jesus. And that includes things like daily Bible readings and devotions and poems that all coordinate together, the weekly sermon, as well as other episodes of this podcast. So thank you for listening today. Until next time, may God bless.